I'd like to welcome you all to the Department of Defense Bloggers Roundtable for Thursday, February 17, 2011. My name is Staff Sergeant Dale Sweetnam from the Office of Chief of Public Affairs, and I will be moderating our call today. A quick note to our bloggers on the line today. Please remember to clearly state your name and your blog or organization in advance of your question. Respect our guest times. Please keep your questions succinct and to the point. And I'll make sure we get to everybody on the line, but also something new we're doing today is we're going to take a few questions from the Army's official Twitter account. So if anyone listening wants to submit a few questions, please do so. Today our guest is the Sergeant Major of the Army, Kenneth Preston, who is on hand to discuss his tenure in the Army and his time as the 13th Sergeant Major of the Army. So I'm going to hand it over to Sergeant Major, please, if you have some opening statements you'd like to make. Okay. Uh, thanks very much. And uh, good afternoon, everyone. And let me just say that uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to spend uh, a little bit of time with you this afternoon and uh, just talk about, uh, you know, what's on your minds and what questions you have out there. But, uh, you know, as uh, as a Sergeant Major of the Army, I serve as the senior enlisted uh, advisor for the Chief of Staff of the Army. My uh, my tenure as a Sergeant Major of the Army will, uh, will come to an end on the 1st of March. And um, Command Sergeant Major uh, Ray Chandler, who's been named as my successor, will be sworn in on the afternoon of the first. But uh, but as a Sergeant Major of the Army, I've spent uh, really the last seven years uh, working for both uh, General Schoemaker and General Casey, and I've spent uh, the majority of my time on the road traveling to talk to soldiers, our families, our Army civilians about uh, you know those challenges that they're facing out there uh, in their units and organizations all around the world, and it's been um, an awesome experience. It's been a very humbling experience to, to serve in this capacity. And uh, really, the, uh, the Sergeant Major of the Army position is, is one that's got a history and a tenure that goes all the way back now for uh, the past 45 years. And as uh, some of you may know, the, uh, the position of the Sergeant Major of the Army was established on the 4th of July, 1966. And uh, Sergeant Major of the Army, uh, William Woldridge, was the, uh, the first Sergeant Major of the Army. I'm now the 13th. Uh, Sergeant Major of the Army to, to serve in this position. But uh, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there and uh, go ahead and open it up then for, for your questions and your discussion. Great. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Uh, first, can we hear from Dale Kissinger, Military Avenue? Well, good afternoon, Sergeant Major. Thank you so much for taking your time to talk to all of us. Could you tell us what surprised you most during your seven years as uh, Sergeant Major of the Army about the Army families? Um, you know, as I look back over the last seven years, and, and I think one of the things that all of us can be very proud of, and it's, you know, not only our, our soldiers and our families, but, but really all of America can be very proud of what uh, the Army has done as an institution to take care of soldiers and, and families now um, with, uh, with the global war on terror. You know, if you go back to, um, you know, really 2004, as, as I was coming on board, you know, the focus of the Army at that time was, was transformation. And it was absolutely essential that uh, the Army go through the transformation process to transform from the Cold War structure that we were uh, through the 70s, the 80s. Uh, you know, the Army that we were on 10 September 2001 was not the Army that we needed on 11 September and, and the months and years that would follow. Uh, so transformation was, uh, was, was a key and critical piece of that. And, of course, in um, October of 2007, the thing that's really significantly impacted our, our families and, and the soldiers out there was uh, the Army Family Covenant. 
And that, uh, that initial covenant that we signed at uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, really uh, focused the Army leadership to provide the resources that we needed to provide a quality of life commensurate with the quality of service that soldiers and families was providing for our nation. And, you know, with the Army Family Covenant, you know, it was, uh, it was the residential community's uh, housing initiative, so it was quality housing for families, it was barracks for our single soldiers, uh, it was a big boost in uh, providing the child care uh, and youth services that was needed to take care of our families while our, our warriors were deployed. And, and I think it was all those uh, pieces tied under the, uh, the umbrella of the Army Family Covenant that uh, you know, has really led to the success that we've had today, not only on the retention side of the house, but especially on the um, um, recruiting side of the house to recruit soldiers and families together. Thank you very much. Uh, we can hear from Rob McLevane from Army News Service now. Uh, hi, my name is Rob McLevane, Army News Service. Um, I we had done an article on you, and but I was looking through it and I just saw a couple of things that I kind of wanted to get explained a little bit more, if you could. Okay. Um, you talked about the specifics about uniforms and equipment, um, how they've changed over these last few years. Can you just uh, name a few examples of some of the uh, ways that uniforms and equipment got better? Sure. Rob, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, if you go back to 2004, and again, it's, um, it, it's something that, that all of us can be very proud of what the Army's been able to accomplish uh, in, in really a very short period of time. And, uh, you know, as I look back at, uh, you know, 2003 as the 5th as the Corps and CJTF 7th Star Major in Iraq, and then, you know, coming into 2004 as the Star Major in the Army, uh, you know, one, the, the uniforms, the equipment that we had out there for the individual soldier was, was not what the soldier needed for accomplishing their missions. And, you know, the, uh, the uniforms that we had out there at the time was, uh, was the battle dress uniform. That was the, you know, the green camouflage uh, the desert camouflage uniform was what we were wearing in, in many cases uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. But, you know, those were uniforms that uh, were not designed to be worn under body armor. And, of course, as we were, you know, fielding the, uh, the body armor, the, the new outer tactical vest with the sappy plates to replace the old Vietnam-era uh, flak vest, you know, it was, a, it was a young PFC out there who said, you know, hey, can we do something with these buttons on the uniform? You know, this this button on my jacket up here at the top is is rubbing a hole through my breastbone. Uh, so, you know, we we involve soldiers at the lowest level who are out there executing missions that uh, you know to help uh, help us with designing a new uniform. And of course, the uniform that we designed uh, initially tested with the the Striker Brigade out of Fort Lewis. Uh, that Striker Brigade subsequently deployed to. Iraq. They were in Mosul in uh, November of '03, but but the feedback from those soldiers is what led us to developing the new uniforms that we had. Uh, the second piece, you know, when you talk about equipment, and um, you know, I, I think one of the key decisions that was made early on was, you know, General Schoomaker, 2004, as the chief of staff of the Army, said, uh, you know, soldiers are the centerpiece of our formation, and by making soldiers the, the critical focal point, you know, we focused on making sure that we took care of soldiers first. 
and it was you know their equipment uh, from their uniforms to the body armor that they needed to keep uh, keep them safe in combat to their individual equipment whether it was uh, an M4 rifle to night vision goggles uh, it was the um, the, the new Equex uh, system which is the extreme cold wet weather clothing system you know that's the the seven layer clothing system and it was all those initiatives as a as an initial focal point, I think that uh, really demonstrated to soldiers on the ground that uh, you know their success uh, was absolutely critical, and, and they were the um, the emphasis of our, our, our efforts. And then, of course, the other ongoing efforts that simultaneously with that was uh, the Up Armored Humvee, you know, to transition from the old uh, you know the M998 Humvee with canvas doors to the what's currently out there now, the 1151 Up Armored Humvee, and of course that was then followed by the uh, mine-resistant ambush protected vehicles, uh, which we're now really on our second generation, uh, which is the mine-resistant ambush protected all-terrain vehicle. So the MRAP ATV is now the uh, current variant that's out there. But, you know, I think uh, that's, you know, something that we could all be very proud of is, um, you know, one, the nation, Congress, as well as the uh, the Army leadership uh, taking care of soldiers was uh, was our uh, primary focus. Hmm. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sergeant Major. We had someone join the call a little bit late. Uh, do you have any questions? This is Brandi Woodley with Army Wife Magazine. I had a question concerning, I am um, being a Sergeant Major's wife. I'm curious to know if Mrs. Preston has... Um, being, you know, being the Army wife of the Sergeant Major in the Army, does she have any initiatives possibly that she would like to see done or kind of conducted for Army spouses? Uh, Brandy, that's a good question too. And, uh, you know, my wife Karen has been um, really a part of uh, a lot of initiatives out there that's been ongoing around the Army. Um, you know, the, the, the First Sergeant Senior NCO um, handbook out there that was published and put out uh, a few years back, uh, it was kind of uh, started, the initiative started out at uh, uh, Fort Leavenworth, and then it was kind of brought in under the, uh, the United States Army Starvation Academy down at Fort Bliss. Uh, so she's been part of that. She's also been, you know, part of uh, speaking to the spouses, uh, along with uh, Mrs. Casey out at uh, the pre-command course at, uh, at Fort Leavenworth. And then, you know, she sits on a number of, um, you know, panels and boards. I mean, she's part of the... Uh, Army Emergency Relief uh, Board of Directors. So she, you know, her input, you know, is very important from a spouse's perspective to make sure that uh, you know the fiduciary responsibility of that board within Army Emergency Relief is providing you know the necessary help out there to take care of soldiers and families. Okay, thank you. Welcome. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Uh, being the social media savvy world that we live in, we've Went ahead and integrated some Twitter questions today, Sergeant Major. So I'm going to take this opportunity to uh, to bring up one we received last night. Uh, we have a soldier who said, basically, what advice would you have for future soldiers scheduled for basic training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina? Yeah, I think uh, if I if I was talking to a to a future soldier and you know, kind of reflecting back on you know what I was feeling as a as a new recruit. You know, getting ready to ship off the basic training because I was uh, part of the delayed entry program. I joined the Army in uh, March of my senior year in high school. Uh, of course, graduated from high school the end of May and then came in the Army the end of June. 
but uh, you know, it's it's the the fear of the unknown and, and not knowing what to expect uh, coming into the army. It's you know, you see a lot of movies and you know, you hear a lot of little stories about uh, army life, and you don't know how much of that is truth and you know how much of that is fiction. So, so what I would say to a to a new recruit is, uh, you know, one, the army is going to take care of you, and you know, as as you make that transition from being a civilian to to being a soldier, listen to your non-commissioned officers because they're going to take good care of you. They're they're the teachers of our army. Uh, you know, we've always had a saying that uh, you know non-commissioned officers are the backbone of the army, and you know, while it's our officers out there that command our organization, it's the non-commissioned officers within our units and organizations that that run the daily routine kind of operations every day. And, you know, it's the non-commissioned officers out there who are the teachers. And it's those things that they've learned over their career, you know, their role, their responsibility to our new recruits coming in is to pass on that information, to, to share the things that they've learned. So first thing is uh, listen, listen to your non-commissioned officers, do what they tell you to do. Uh, they're going to, you know, they're going to they're gonna push you. They're going to... Um, um, give you opportunities to, to learn a little bit about yourself, to, to see, um, you know, how physically fit you are and, you know, what your motivation is. And if you continue to try, you'll find that progressively day after day after day, you're going to grow with the Army. And, you know, before long, that organization that you're part of um, is going to be a very close-knit organization, and you're going to become part of uh, that band of brothers and sisters. And it's part of a, being part of an organization that is, you know, bigger than yourself. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Uh, another question, uh, how would you respond to the notion that the U.S. Army uh, is the policeman of the world and they defend other countries' borders, politics, and freedoms more than our own? I think, uh, you know, as you look at uh, what the uh, uh, what the Army's charged to do, and, you know, the Army's number one mission is, is to fight and win our nation's wars, and it's to to defend our freedoms and the American people here at home. And, of course, it's our uh, elected officials, it's the administration, the president who serve as, uh, serves as the commander-in-chief of the Army. Uh, it's Congress, our elected officials, who represent all the American people that make the determination where boots on the ground need to be placed to best serve and take care of not only the American people, but our, our friends and our allies. And, and I think, you know... A lot of Americans out there sometimes don't realize the uh, the partnership that we have with many many countries around the world, and you know it's that partnership out there that that bond and that relationship that we've formed among all of our security forces that uh, that that keeps us safe. And it's uh, it's more than just withdrawing within the boundaries of our country and you know becoming our our own little island. It's you know over the last several decades, you know we've become a uh, global market and you can walk out into a parking lot anywhere in the United States and you'll find you know cars out there that are manufactured in Germany uh, Korea Japan um, Sweden I mean they're all from all over the world so um, you can go down to a local dealership and, and an American citizen has access to any of those it's it's really become a global market here in this country and and likewise it's become a global market around the world you know, Coca-Cola is an example, which is an American company. Uh, Coca-Cola is now marketed and sold in 170 countries around the world. McDonald's and the Golden Arches is another one who's now marketed and sold in over 100, 120 countries around the world. 
So, so while the world has become a, a global market and it allows companies within our country to, to reach out and sell their products worldwide, uh, now what's happening, if you're listening to the news and watching all the things that are going on, um, you know, there's a, a lot of things happening in countries out there. It's, you know, we're now uh, evolving to become a global society. And it's what we refer to as, as globalization. And, and the definition of globalization is uh, it, it's, it's a blending and coming together of um, the societies of the world to form a global society. And, you know, if you saw, like, most recently what's happened in, um, you know, Tunisia, what's happened in Egypt, now Libya, um, you know, there's people rising up against those, um, um, you know, totalitarian uh, monarchies uh, for our government out there. And, um, you know, they want their freedoms too. So I think, um, you know, it's going to be very important that, uh, that the United States and, you know, specifically America's Army partner with those other security forces around the, uh, the world to protect our friends and allies and, you know, because it keeps the American people here at home safe. Great. Thank you, Senator Major. Well, we have one up here. You can see my boyfriend of two years is in the infantry and deploying in July. What advice do you have for him? Well, of course, uh, if he's getting ready to deploy in July, that means that, uh, you know, he's part of a unit organization that's now going through their training and preparation for their upcoming mission. So, you know, my advice to him, again, is, uh, you know, listen to, the, to his non-commissioned officers, his leadership. Uh, they'll be the ones that, uh, uh, that are the subject matter experts that will, you know, give him all the skill sets that he needs to not only be part of the organization, but to be successful for the missions that they're going to do. Um, where, where they're deploying. Uh, the other piece I would say for him is to, you know, um, as he becomes part of the unit organization for, since he's a boyfriend, uh, is to, you know, establish the, uh, the communication linkages um, and have a network at home where, you know, he can reach back and uh, stay connected and communicate with, uh, with you and the family. I think, uh, you know, from all the times that I've been deployed throughout my career, it's, uh, you know, it's the friends, the family back home that, that really provide the motivation and, you know, it's, uh, it's the dreams of getting through and accomplishing the mission that you've been deployed for and getting back to the loved ones who are waiting patiently at home. And uh, I think, uh, you know, now as, as you begin this, uh, this ramp up and, you know, for this ultimate deployment, that, uh, you know, establishing those communications, taking advantage of the, the off-duty time that, that he has to spend time with family and friends um, is what he will need to carry him through uh, the time that he's going to be deployed here for the future. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Uh, we've heard this one a couple times after watching the, the list we have up here on Twitter. What do you believe that the ideal size of the Army should be? Uh, good question. I think... Um, you know, right now, I mean, we've grown the Army as I look back, particularly over the last, um, you know, four years. You go back to uh, 2007, uh, that's when we were given permission to permanently add 74,200 soldiers to, to the Army inventory. And, of course, out of that 74,200, you know, 65,000 went to the active component. It was 8,200 to the National Guard and 1,000 to the Army Reserve. And... You know, there was uh, there was initially a five-year plan that was laid out to to grow the army, um, so that uh, you know, one, the uh, the training base, the number of drill sergeants, and you know, organizations out there that that train our new recruits coming in, 
that could be sustained. Um, and of course, you know, what's allowed us really to, to meet our end strength objectives uh, two years ahead of schedule, we actually met our end strength objectives uh, summer of 2009, what allowed us to, to grow the Army and uh, get there way ahead of schedule was, uh, was retention. So, you know, we've grown the Army and, and since then we've also, you know, added an additional 22,000, uh, which is a temporary end strength, to um, ensure that our units and organizations that are deploying have the people, the assets they need to do the missions which uh, they've been asked to do. But uh, but there's a plan. I think right now, you know, for the size of the Army that we've got, it matches for uh, the missions that we've been asked to do. The uh, the dwell time that we've got out there right now between deployments is um, uh, substantially increased over where it was. You know, if you go back to 2007 at the height of the surge in Iraq, you know, we had soldiers out there that were doing 15-month deployments. And of course, you know, we've since come off of those and, uh, you know, last year we met the presidential uh, mandate in, in August of 2010 to, to be at 50,000 service members um, uh, in Iraq, which, which we met that mandate. And, and right now the agreement between the Iraqi government and the United States government is to have everything out uh, by December of 11. So I think, you know, for the size of the Army and, uh, you know, what we've been asked to do, we're exactly where, where we need to be. The, uh, the 22,000 temporary end strength that, that we have above our authorized end strength, uh, we're, we're going to give that back. And you know, we'll gradually draw down that 22,000 over the course of the, the next couple years. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Uh, well, we're still pulling in a few more questions from Twitter, but we'll take this opportunity to talk to people back on the line. Ask, do you have any uh, follow-up questions for Sergeant Major? Um, Dale does. <laughs> okay, Hi, sir. Please do. Yeah, go ahead, Daryl. Okay, um, Sergeant Major, I just uh, saw in the news today that a congressperson had um, put an amendment into the DOD bill to eliminate the uh, NASCAR Army car, which is a great recruiting tool. What do you think of that proposal? Uh, great question, and and I, and I saw the uh, saw the article, and you know, and, and at the same time, you know, to, you know, without taking sides, you know, from the from the bill and from that congressman's perspective. You know they have the uh, the responsibility to be good stewards of the you know of all of our taxpayer dollars. I mean, and all of us you know, we pay you know we pay taxes to uh, um, and of course it's Congress that has that responsibility to you know really scrutinize over how those how those monies are spent. And and I think that uh, what this does is by introducing the bill, it's going to give us an opportunity to make the business case and. You know, as we kind of lay out, this is uh, the money that's spent. This is how the money is, uh, is spent, and of course, this is the impact that uh, that those dollars have for. Uh, and, and I call it, you know, it's more than just putting, um, you know, the Army logo on the side of a race car. It's it, it's all the other things that are associated with that sponsorship. And um, you know, for example, this uh, this weekend coming up is the uh, we're starting back in again. You got the Daytona 500. And I'll have an opportunity to go down and spend time with the uh, the recruiting battalion there in Florida that will be falling in on the uh, uh, the racetrack, and you know they'll be the ones those recruiters out there engaging with 220,000 Americans that'll probably be there in attendance to watch that race. And so I you know I think it's important that uh, you know we continually um, ask those questions. That's what Congress uh, their their role is. They got to kind of ask the tough kind of questions. And it's up to us as, a, as an institution to 
you know, show and demonstrate, make the business case uh, of, of what that money's being used for, how it's being used, and, uh, you know, of course, the, the, the effects of what would happen if that money were to go away, um, you know, what would be the impact on the Army and, and really connecting with the American people. So, over. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Uh, Rob, do you have any follow-up questions? Uh, no, I don't. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Brandy? Yes, I have one more question, Sergeant Major. Um, sure. Within Army Life magazine, we get a lot of information out to our spouses as much as we can through not only our magazine, but also through our social media groups. We have several groups, and within that, we've had spouses ask a question about getting information um, before their soldier deploys, you know, for PCS, different events like that. And was wondering what would be your thoughts on possibly making it mandatory for spouses to attend briefings or meetings to obtain or maintain their ID cards. We know that our soldiers go through tons of briefings and meetings and things before deployments and when they join the Army. What would you think about the spouses attending meetings? Uh, that's a great question. And, you know, my uh, my first experience with a big deployment was uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And uh, I was a first sergeant of, uh, of a cavalry troop with um, the 11th Cavalry in uh, Fulda, Germany. And we were given the mission, and, and, and actually our mission started. We actually, um, we, we deployed in uh, October of uh, 1990 to bombholder Germany. And, and of course, we were down there doing a lot of training uh, for... Um, the tank platoons assigned to the regiment. But, but we were down there uh, all the way up through till Christmas. And then it was at that time that we were given the mission that, uh, you know, we were traditionally told that we were not going to deploy for Desert Shield, Desert Storm, uh, but we would be utilized to train 19 Delta individual ready reserves uh, at Camp Colt, which we would build in Wild Flake in Germany. Uh, so, of course, you know, everybody was disheartened the fact that, you know, we weren't going to get to go to the Gulf War. Uh, so, you know, we left Bomb Holder and initially went about uh, preparing um, to, to do this big train-up for all these um, former soldiers that were being recalled back to active duty as potential replacements for uh, potential soldiers that would be lost in combat. And uh, so we spent the Christmas holidays, immediately went in, you know, early part of January, built Camp Cold and, and started to receive, uh, you know, these soldiers in. Of course, Desert Shield, Desert Storm was in February of uh, 91. Uh, the war was over very quickly. And it was really at the end of the war, there towards the end of February, that we were then given the mission that we would deploy um, to Southwest Asia to be the security force to, to reestablish uh, the border uh, be the security for all the units as they withdrew uh, and returned back to the states. Um, and, of course, do a lot of things there, like open the embassy up, put out the oil well fires, and, you know, those sort of things. So, you know, so we ended up uh, leaving uh, Wild Flicken. You know, we had to do a certification of our crews, tanks and Bradley crews, uh, at Graf and Beer, and then we immediately deployed. And, of course, you know, we went down to, uh, to Saudi Arabia, then into Kuwait, and we stayed there all the way until September, October time frame of 91. And so what I just laid out for you, really, we were gone from October of 90 to September, October of 91. So we, we were gone really for a year. And, and what I learned during that deployment, and this is uh, the value of uh, the family readiness groups and the value of having spouses 
you know, participate in those activities. Uh, you know, my troop commander uh, was single, so you know, my wife Karen was uh, was the senior spouse, and it was it was her along with the uh, the spouses of the the platoon leaders, and they formed a very tight knit uh, you know band of sisters, and it was them who you know really reached out to, to pull all the spouses of that. Uh, the the cav troop together and there was you know, we had 136 soldiers assigned to the uh, uh, to Alpha Troop you know we were uh, about 50 percent married so uh, that band of sisters they they formed a very close knit team and you know they stayed in contact with each other and 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 they really shared responsibilities there was spouses who volunteered to to babysit uh, children while a spouse had a medical or a doctor's appointment and. You know, so there there was a, a lot of lessons learned that that came out of that deployment. That you know, now you fast forward to um, you know 9/11 and and the events that after happened after 9/11. We started deploying uh, forces. You know, as a fifth Corps Star Major deploying to uh, Iraq in November of 2002. Well, actually, we were deployed down to Kuwait, and then in March of 03, we did the invasion into Iraq. But you know, we were gone for for over a year. You know, so from November of '02 all the way up until December of '03, um, you know, again it was the the spouses that uh, that formed a very tight knit organization. So, so what I found was, you know, as part of the uh, the family covenant that I talked about earlier, you know, when we signed the uh, the Army Family Covenant in October of 2007. You know, one of the uh, the incentives, the initiatives that was that was put into that family covenant was the Family Readiness Support Assistant, you know, the FRSA. And and what we learned, you know, with, um, you know, from 2001 all the way up until 2007, you know, if you was to talk to a, uh, to a senior spouse who served as a Family Readiness Group leader, she would tell you that, uh, he or she would tell you that, you know, being a Family Readiness Group leader for a unit for an entire year is a long time. But being the Family Readiness Group leader on the second deployment and the third deployment is even harder. And uh, so, so General Casey and uh, at the time Secretary Guerin, who was the Secretary of the Army, you know, they realized very quickly that, um, you know, in order to keep that band of sisters, uh, you know, the, the family readiness group as a, as a tight-knit organization, you know, they needed some help. And, you know, of course, the family readiness support assistant was established. And, you know, today we have over a thousand uh, FRSAs out there with our family readiness groups, and and they they really help um, our families stay in contact with each other, and and this gets into you know going out making contacts with um, you know those uh, family members who may not want to be part of a family readiness group, uh, but you know it's important to go out there and establish contact. Somebody within the uh, the organization has to stay in contact. You know I always worried you know being in Germany. That uh, you know the spouse of a young PSC living out on the German economy, you know, might be living out there for an entire year, and nobody ever makes contact with her, and that was always my biggest fear. And 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 I think that uh, you know now with the, the systems out there in place, that you know, you know, we're going to stay in contact with those families, and you know, maybe they may not necessarily want to come in and uh, you know attend some of the meetings. They may not necessarily want to be you know, part of a lot of the activities because a lot of them have, you know, small children at home. A lot of them have jobs and careers of their own that they're working. So I, so I think it's got to be a give and take. And I, I would be cautious to say it'd be mandatory, you know, to make a, a spouse be part of it. I think it's, 
you know, you encourage them to, to volunteer to be part of the family readiness group. But at the same time, I think it's part of the Army's responsibility to, to reach out and ensure they stay connected uh, with the family readiness group and the information that a commander sends from a unit that's forward deployed back to you know, that family readiness group. And I think that's the, you know, the biggest contribution that, that we can make. I, I did have a follow-up question, if it's all right. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Rob McElvain, Army News Service. Sergeant Major, you, uh, uh, you were just saying that um, uh, it's important for families to stay together. My my son just got back from Iraq. He's with the National Guard, <clears throat> and um, and that group, you know, there's so many. There, I didn't really see much relation between a lot of the wives and the family readiness group, which. You know, understandably, it was five hours away in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, and um, and I'm just wondering because the National Guard is being utilized so much, is there any plans in the future to sort of bring uh, the same um, togetherness that the active army is able to uh, experience? Yeah, uh, great, great question. And yeah, you know, my my son's also deployed. He's a um uh, Army Reserve Staff Sergeant uh, MP, you know, right now uh, in Afghanistan training um, Afghan police. Yeah. Uh, this, this is his second deployment, and you know, of course, he has a young wife. Um, just had uh, their first child, you know, here back uh, back in December. Oh, congratulations! But, um, yeah, so, but you know, I also stay close to you. Know, you look at his, uh, you know, his MP company that he's assigned to, and you know, of course, the Family Readiness Group, and you know, what's the information pieces out there for taking care of our reserve component soldiers and their families. And, you know, for both the Army National Guard and the Army Reserve, you know, we've come, you know, light years ahead of, of where we were, but we still got still got a lot of work out there yet to do. I think one of the biggest contributions that, uh, and, and the Guard has really been the lead in establishing the, uh, the Yellow Ribbon uh, yeah. program. And, uh, you know, of course, the Yellow Ribbon program is, was, was designed to Initially, bring families together three times prior to the unit's deployment, and uh, you know they, they they come together initially. Um, you know when the unit is um, alerted for for um, mobilization, so that's that's a year out. Uh, then they try to bring the families together um, twice if they can, but at least one time. You know prior to the uh, to the soldiers being mobilized and leaving home to make sure that. You know, one family's got ID cards. You know, they're enrolled into DEERS. You know, they know how to get medical help, and then also to to establish that uh, that online connection because that's really the, the 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 key for many of the uh, the guard and reserve families because uh, in many cases they're they're dispersed over a much broader footprint and and they're not living together you know within the same communities or on an installation like their active duty counterparts. Uh, so the yellow, yellow ribbon program initially to to is, is what's good at building that success and you know we've got some units out there the um, um, first uh, brigade of the 34th infantry out of uh, Minnesota was the ones that, that really kind of spearheaded the uh, the startup of the uh, of the organization the Yellow Ribbon program but it's uh, you know and there's units out there like them that have really expanded on it and of course they're opening up whole new doors and there's a lot of best practices out there that we're now sharing with with other organizations uh, across the Guard Reserve. The, the other piece, too, is, of course, while the soldiers are deployed, you know, the Yellow River Program then 
you know, really is designed to check up on the families. And, you know, somewhere within the first 90 days of the unit being mobilized and, and t- being taken away, you know, it's important to bring those families in. And, and again, it's it's a volunteer action for, you know, the spouses, families to, to, to come in and meet to ensure that they've got everything that they need. Uh, they have a point of contact, you know, there as part of the rear detachment. There's a family readiness support assistant as part of those uh, battalion-sized units that are deployed to help maintain uh, connection, communication linkages, newsletters, and all the rest of it. And then, you know, we want to bring them back in, you know, within about 90 days of the unit coming back from their deployment. And and we do this for uh, a couple reasons. One, you know, we want to reestablish contact with the families, but two, we want to start uh, the reintegration of the soldier with their family. And, you know, it starts by bringing the families in, doing some uh, – some education, some training, so that you know those spouses out there will understand uh, some of the challenges that their soldier will go through reintegrating back into the family unit once they return. And of course, you know we're doing the same thing, you know, downrange with the soldier. We're doing some reintegration training down there, so that you know they begin to understand what you know what emotions they'll feel coming back as they reintegrate back with their family. So that's that's another great thing about the uh, the Yellow Ribbon Program is to you know, begin to lay the groundwork, the foundation for uh, the reintegration of soldiers and families together. And then following the uh, the demobilization, you know, it's the 30, 60, 90 day uh, engagements for soldiers and families to, to bring people together just to, to check on them, you know, to look a soldier in the eye, to, you know, ask a family, hey, how's, uh, you know, how's Stassar Preston doing? And, you know, how, how you all doing with the reintegration? To, and, and that's been... Uh, you know, our, our greatest uh, contribution, I think, to the Guard and Reserve, uh, really, as I look back over the last seven years, to, to stand up the Yellow Ribbon Program. And, mm. you know, it really has. It's, it's served as a, as a foundation. It's a, it's a good starting point. And, and I think that it's going to continue to to grow and we'll build on the, the success of that program to, uh, to ensure that, uh, you know, soldiers and families are getting everything they need, um, particularly on the citizen-soldier side of, of serving in the Army. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Sergeant Major. We're going to move the back over to the Twitter conversation for a little bit. We had a question come in earlier asking, what are three skills or abilities that have made you a successful Sergeant Major of the Army and a successful non-commissioned officer? Um, okay, very good question. You know, I had a, I had a young soldier ask me about, uh, you know, how he could become uh, Sergeant Major of the Army one day. And this was a this was a young PFC, and as I as I told the young soldier, I said, uh, you know, as a as as a soldier, as a as a junior listed soldier, specialist and below, you know, focus on being the best soldier that you can be. You know, your appearance, you know, being on time uh, for duty, you know, being where you're supposed to be. And then I said, uh, listen to your non-commissioned officers and and learn everything you can uh, from your leaders. I said, uh, you know, as a young soldier, what you want to strive to be is a subject matter expert in your profession. And and I said, you know, I'll give you a couple examples. If you're the if you're the young infantry soldier, the way you demonstrate um, being an expert in your profession is the expert infantry badge. You know, the expert infantry badge competition. Uh, when you when you've earned that EIB. You know, you've demonstrated that you're an expert in your profession, that, that you know those uh, soldier skills that you're expected to, to be a teacher for. 
Uh, if you're the the medic, you know the expert field medical badge competition. You know, earning the EFMB is is a very important part of demonstrating excellence in your profession. You know, if you're the the young cavalry scout, you know, earning your cavalry spurs. You know, through the uh, spur competition is another way to demonstrate being an expert. And I said for and for all of our uh, career fields out there, you've got NCOs, Soldier of the Month boards, Soldier of the Quarter boards. You've got uh, Sergeant Morales, Sergeant Audie Murphy, all those kind of venues uh, are opportunities to demonstrate being an expert in your profession. And I said, uh, you know, it's being an expert in your profession is what's going to allow you to get promoted uh, very quickly. You'll move up to the ranks because you'll stand out above your peers. And, uh, and of course, as you get promoted to becoming a sergeant, all the things that you learned as, as a young soldier, being an expert in your profession, that's what will now make you a great non-commissioned officer. And it's, it's taking those things that you learned as a, as a young soldier, and now you know, that piece of the Army you're responsible for, those two or three soldiers, you take all that you've learned and you teach your soldiers everything that you've gained you know, over your short career. And it's by, by taking what you've learned and teaching it back to your soldiers. You know, one, it makes them great soldiers, but two, it makes you a great teacher. And, and it makes you uh, even more of a subject matter expert because when you start teaching a subject, you know, your soldiers are going to have questions. They're going to ask questions. They're going to they're gonna want knowledge. They're going to be the, the sponges out there. And, of course, it's going to force you to, to do some homework, to ask questions, and, and become even more of a subject matter expert in your profession. But, uh, but by teaching your soldiers, you know, you, uh, you grow them to be like you were as a young soldier. And, uh, and of course, by taking care of your soldiers in that way, that's what's going to get you promoted. And uh, you'll get promoted from sergeant to staff sergeant to sergeant first class. And, and of course, as you move up uh, in responsibility in the Army, that means that uh, now you've got responsibility for even a bigger piece of the Army. You know, there's more uh, soldiers out there that you're responsible for. You've got uh, subordinate leaders now within your formation. You know, as a, as a squad leader, as a staff sergeant, you know, you've got, uh, you know, generally two team leaders. So you've got two subordinate leaders. And then you've got, uh, you know, about uh, um, six or seven soldiers uh, with, uh, with the, under those two team leaders that, uh, that you're responsible for. And, the, um, you know, teaching those leaders how to be good leaders, how to be subject matter experts, and how to be trainers for their soldiers, you know, allows you to grow that formation to be as good as what you were as a young soldier. And, of course, as you move up to the ranks, uh, you know, all the way up to, you know, being a command sergeant major where you have oversight of an entire battalion, you know, anywhere from, from four to 800 soldiers in an organization. And again, it's making those soldiers, those leaders of that organization as good as you were, uh, you know, as a young leader and as a young soldier. And, you know, and I've continued that all the way up to, to being sergeant major of the Army. And I still Thank consider you for myself using today, Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye. I consider myself being a, um, a teacher and, uh, and a mentor for you know, the soldiers out there serving today. Looks like uh, may have been disconnected. Is anybody on the line still? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm listening. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think what we did was just, yes, okay. No worries, our Major. We're still good. Um, we have another question from a FRG leader who would like to hear about your advice or perspective and experiences from Desert Storm. Okay. Um, you know, it's interesting. You know, we've come a long way since, uh, since Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And, uh, you know, you still remember back 
you know, not only Desert Shield, Desert Storm, but I also did a deployment to Kuwait in uh, 1996. I was a brand-new battalion CSM uh, coming into um, the 3rd Battalion, 8th Cavalry, which was part of the uh, the 3rd Brigade of the 1st Cavalry Division. And, uh, of course, the, uh, the Grey Wolf Brigade received the, uh, the 911 call in uh, September of 96, and it was uh, no notice. You know, 72 hours, the entire brigade... You know, which was serving as the uh, the division ready brigade. You know, was immediately deployed to Kuwait. Uh, we drew out the entire pre-post set of equipment, and within 72 hours, we were digging in defensive positions, uh, preparing for what was, you know, a potential uh, reinvasion of Kuwait by the Iraqi army. But uh, you know, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, as well as you know that that deployment in '96. The, uh, the communication linkages, and this has probably been the biggest challenge, is, you know, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, the uh, communications linkages with a commander, you know, my troop commander and, and myself, you know, we were, you know, it was probably uh, weeks and, you know, between actually calling back and checking in with the, uh, the rear detachment, checking in with the families back home. Uh, fast forward to 1996. You know, it was, uh, you know, once a week we made it a point to call back and link in with the family readiness groups. And, of course, now you fast forward to, to present day, and now really you've got daily communications between unit leaders and family readiness group leaders, rear detachments back home. So I, I think the biggest lesson that we learned is, uh, is, is about communications. And, and the more that you can stay connected between the family readiness groups, the rear detachment, and then the forward deployed command team, it, uh, it really helps dispel rumors. It helps uh, the families back home stay connected with what is really happening on the ground uh, in theater. And, uh, and, I, and I think that it's, uh, it, it dispels uh, you know, a lot of the uncertainty of, of not knowing what's going to happen. So it provides a lot more predictability um, as well as stability for, for the soldiers as well as their families. Thank you, Sergeant Major. <clears throat> We're coming up here in an hour. We have, uh, I guess have the opportunity for a few more questions on the line, if anyone has any. I don't have any more. If not, okay. If not, we'd like to take the opportunity to basically ask, as your tenure as the 13th Sergeant Major of the Army is coming to an end, what are you going to reflect back most on and, and remember uh, as your time in this position? Uh, good question. <clears throat> I think... Um, you know, the, the thing that, uh, that I am most proud of is uh, it's not about, you know, what I personally have done. I, I think, you know, just being part of, you know, the Army leadership, being part of, um, you know, the command and control structure here within the Pentagon and for the Army is, is, is what the Army has done to, to transform. And when we started Army Transformation in 2004, it uh, really was the largest transformation of the force since World War II, and to completely dissect the Army, take it apart, restructure it, and then put those units and organizations back online for um, upcoming deployments was, was nothing short of extraordinary. And, uh, you know, today we're you know, over 92% complete in the modular transformation of our Army, so, you know, and, and this is across all three components, the active, the guard, and the reserve. And, you know, like units and all three of those components are now entirely the same. You know, they're all structured the same. They have the same number of soldiers in a team or a squad. They have the same kinds of equipment. 
Um, you know, they have the same kind of predictability and stability in, in preparing for, for an upcoming mission to, you know, the amount of dwell time that they have, you know, between deployments. So, you know, we've come such, such a long, long way in transforming the Army. And, you know, and of course, it's the second, third, fourth order effects now that, um, you know, serve as the, uh, the building blocks on top of that foundation. And, you know, it's now going through and, and adapting our institution and uh, the generating force to support the Army Force Generation model. And, and, of course, there's, you know, hundreds of things that have, you know, changed and transformed over the last seven years. And, but, but I think that, uh, you know, the foundation that uh, really enabled us to, to move the Army so far ahead is, was, was that initial transformation initiative to, to get the Army set uh, into what we wanted the organization to, to be, know, and do. Uh, for the for the not only for the current fight but for the foreseeable future. All right, great. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Uh, thank you all. We've had some great questions and comments today. As we wrap up today's call, I'd like to ask Sergeant Major if he has any final comments. Okay. Yeah, just as a as a closing thought, I just want to say thank you to to all of you out there, and you know, for all of your unwavering support of our soldiers, our families, our Army civilians, uh, for uh, you know what you've done to, to help support uh, support us and you know I spend a lot of time traveling I spend about 270 days a year you know going out to post camps and stations all around the world and, and of course I spend a lot of time traveling on commercial aircraft and through airports and you know public transportation centers and you know for the American public to reach out and of course yeah, I'm walking to an airport they don't they don't know who I am they just know that I'm a soldier and for them to walk up and you know, shake my hand and say thank you for your service. You know, I attribute um, you know that success to all of you that uh, are going out there today, telling the soldier story. You know, telling about uh, you know all the things that we've done and you know what's been accomplished, and really going out and connecting with uh, the American people. So, on behalf of uh, the Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, General George W. Casey Jr., uh, our Secretary of the Army, the Honorable. Uh, John McHugh and, and all of our senior leaders back here at the Pentagon, just thanks very much for what you do and uh, thanks for very much for, for all your support. So, Army Strong. Thank you, Sergeant Major. A uh, quick note, today's program will be available online at the bloggers link on DOD.mil where you'll be able to access a story based on today's call along with source documents such as this audio file. Again, thank you, Sergeant Major, and thank you to our blogger participants. And uh, this concludes today's event.